night is the evening of July 6, 1944. General Eisenhower is addressing the International Press Corps that has been flown across the English Channel for this exclusive press conference. These are Eisenhower's first public comments on the D-Day invasion, Operation Overlord, and its success. Operation Overlord was the greatest amphibious operation the world has ever seen. A truly staggering feat of logistics that involved putting ashore on the Normandy beaches a total of 176,475 men, 3,000 artillery pieces, 1,500 tanks, and 15,000 assorted vehicles, close to 8,000 fighting ships, merchant ships, and assault crafts were committed to the entire invasion force along with 10,500 air sorties. Allied commanders secretly predicted to Eisenhower that as many as 10,000 men could be killed in the first 24 hours of the landings, also known as the longest day, and that the invasion could be pushed back into the sea. Thankfully, they were overly pessimistic. Fewer than 4,500 Allied soldiers were killed on D-Day, and the total casualties were 8,422. This was in part due to the highly intricate Allied deception plans and the breaking of the Enigma Code that led Hitler and his military staff to believe the invasion would be at Pas de Calais, the narrowest point between England and France. The D-Day landings were the beginning of the end of Hitler's Third Reich. On behalf of General Bradley, General Patton, and General Marshall, I would like to welcome the International Press Corps to Normandy. I pray that you had a safe trip from uh, England. I believe you flew out of London, if I'm correct. Most of you came by that way. Uh, I just would ask one thing. You're about uh, 12 kilometers right now from the front line. We would not want to send any of you back in a body bag. So each of your groups as a press corps, you have been assigned MPs. Stay with your MP or two or three of them. Some of you have been assigned with. Do not wander off. Remember, we're very close to the front line and there's still German snipers in the area and they probably would love uh, to get hold of a press corps. Uh, so we do not want that. Four years ago, we were a third-rate military power in the world. Prior to Pearl Harbor, there was no way we could have placed on any given war zone in the world more than 15,000 troops at any given time. After World War I, like always, Congress, the Senate, the executive branch will always cut back on the military. That's exactly what they did. World War I was over. For good, the war to end all wars never happened again. That's cut back on the military. They cut back heavily on the military. I don't know where you were on Sunday morning, December the 7th. 1942, but I know where I was. I was in Texas 
three days of bivouac in military games. When I came back, I was hungry, agitated, and tired. I did not want to be bothered. I went to bed. A couple hours later, a knock on my door. Ike, we have just been bombed by the Japanese. As we gathered around the radio, the news filtered in. 3,775 of our sailors and women, nurses, killed. The entire Pacific fleet destroyed, except two aircraft carriers, only by the grace of God, left Pearl Harbor a half hour before it was bombed. The Pacific Fleet, gone! Just like that. We were impotent in the Pacific. And only by the grace of God, the Japanese did not invade California. They did Alaska. And we stopped them on the islands up in Alaska. But they were thinking about invading California. You would be speaking Japanese today. We had no army. Air Force depleted, the Army Air Force. Marines de depleted. The government depleted everything. And for four, five, six years prior to 1940, the Japanese and the Germans were building up because they knew. They knew what was going on. They had their spies everywhere. The two Japanese ambassadors talking peace one day before Pearl Harbor. They knew exactly what they were doing. On December the 16th, I was called to Washington, D.C. to the War Department. General Marshall sat me down, said, Ike, if we cannot stop the Japanese or Germany, your children, my grandchildren, will be speaking German. That's how serious it was. We were impotent. We had nothing. No buildup of arms. No new planes. World War I weapons. World War I tanks. And Germany was kicking out High-tech Tiger tanks every day because Hitler knew what he was doing. We had two enemies, the Japanese and the Germans. We did not have the military power or the money to take on both. We had to make a decision. We got together with England, Winston Churchill, Russia, our ally, Stalin, the King of England, King George, Roosevelt, the Joint Chiefs of Staff. They decided to take on Germany first, and then the Japanese. There were three reasons why we took on Germany first. Very interesting, maybe for your press corps. Number one, the V1 
the V-2 rockets. The Germans were far superior with rocket science, far beyond us. Even by 1943, they were testing jet engines. The German scientists, I can only imagine after this war, the Russians will probably go for the German scientists of their technology and their ability. The V-1, the V-2, every day after Pearl Harbor, because England was in the war long before we were, bombing every major city in England, thousands of civilians dying every day. They could not stop it. The V-1, the V-2, 60 miles up in the air on a timer. They knew exactly what to do, dropping a 500 bomb on innocent civilians. Adolf Hitler wanted England to surrender. I can tell you right now, if England would have surrendered, you would be speaking German. Absolutely. Hitler was going to invade England, but only by the grace of God. He postponed it. And by the time they were ready to invade England, it was way too late for that. That was number one, the V-1, the V-2 rocket engineering. We had to take on Germany and destroy it. Number two, the Atlantic Wall. Adolf Hitler said the Atlantic Wall will never be penetrated all the way from Spain, all the way up to Norway and Sweden. 3,275 miles of protected Atlantic Wall. He was so infatuated by this wall that Adolf Hitler removed Rommel, which he probably should have anyways of the disaster with Operation Torch in North Africa, and brought Rommel back to Germany and placed him in charge of defending the Atlantic Wall. 50 million landmines, 100,000 88s, all the way along, it was a virtual trap for anybody to cross those beaches. Adolf Hitler said the Allies will never come because they're scared. Well, we did. We did come. And yes, we were scared. But these young 17, 18, 19-year-old men hit those beaches and never looked back. Number three, the third reason we took on Germany. We have received intel from the French underground on concentration camps, work camps, death camps. We're not sure at this point what's going on, but we know every day in Europe, complete Jewish families disappear. We know that Negroes disappear. We know that college professors that speak out against the Third Reich, the Nazis, disappear. All these groups are disappearing. We know how Adolf Hitler was in the 1938 Olympics, don't you? You were there as the press corps. You remember Jesse Owens. Jesse Owens is a black man. Adolf Hitler cannot stand the black race. 
He compares the blacks with the Jews. What did Jesse Owens do? He defeated the Germans in the long jump, the 100-meter run, the 220-meter run. It was victory after victory. It was so bad that Adolf Hitler threw his hat down, down and walked out of the stadium. They had to eliminate all the blacks out of Europe. All the Jews had to go. All the college professors against Nazis. Now remember, press corps, not all Germans are Nazis. You understand that. Not all belong to the Nazi party the National Socialistic Party. Nazism is socialism. Your major German Wehrmacht generals are not Nazis. Rommel wasn't a Nazi. Rundstrup was not a, a, a Nazi. Beck was not a Nazi. They were just good generals that realized who they were dealing with with Hitler. So those are the reasons we took on the Third Reich. Hitler had 10.6 million man army. Two million Waffen SS. You don't mess with Waffen SS. In fact, Patton and I gave the command after, well, some incidents that happened. Patton said, Ike, can I shoot him? And I kind of just nodded my head. <laughs> if you capture a Waffen SS, whatever you want to do. I didn't give the command. They're terrible. The Waffen-SS. After our victory at Torch, Operation Torch, I was called to Washington, D.C. to President Roosevelt's office. He said, Ike, we've talked about it with Stalin, King George, Winston Churchill, the French, we have decided to make you the Allied Supreme Commander of the invasion of Fortress Europe. That's the badge you see on me here. There's only 5,000 men and women have this badge. The program is absolutely or was top secret. I had six months to prepare an army to cross 60 miles of open water, hit beaches that are one to two to 300 yards long, fortified positions, and break through the Atlantic Wall. The estimates coming back to me were tens of thousands of these young men would die even before they hit the beach. And many of them did. Many of them ne never made it off the landing crafts. But they knew that. They knew that. It was a different breed of men. So we organized. I talked with Winston Churchill. You have to know Winston Churchill. He probably is not going to like me to say this to the press corps. A couple of months before D-Day, we had a party. And the king was there, the king and queen of England. And the court. But Winston Churchill likes to drink a little bit. So he was uh, a little tipsy. Of course, I, I always thought he was tipsy anyways, Winston Churchill. Great man, though. I, I love him. One lady came up to him. It's a true story. Said, Prime Minister, you're drunk. You're a disgrace to we English. 
And he always had a stogie in his mouth. You know that, don't you? He's always smoking those big cigars. He called them Cuban, Cuban cigars. He's smoking his cigar and he blows smoke in her face and said, yes, madam, you are ugly. However, tomorrow morning I will wake up sober. You will still wake up ugly. <laughs> True story. True story. I could tell a lot of stories about Winston Churchill. Quite a man. We had a lot of work to do. We had six months to do it. Everything relied upon weather, the moon, the stars, wind, rain, because we could not cancel. Once you cancel, you realize the seriousness of it being detected by the Germans. Germans have spies everywhere in England. They have spies in New York City. They have spies in Washington, D.C. War means spies. George Washington had a hundred and some spies. Most of them were women. Women make the best spies. So we use women wherever we can in relationship to our circle of spies. Double spies, double agents, they're everywhere. Nothing could get out. It would be like Washington crossing the Delaware River if the German Hessians would have found out they would have lined up their artillery and blown Washington's army to kingdom come. That's exactly what would happen to us as we cross the English Channel. Only we have 60 miles to go. But we had to get the Germans to believe we were landing somewhere else at a different time, at a different place, a different situation. Well, how do you do that? Because the German high command are not dumb. Adolf Hitler might be stupid, but the German high command is not. They had the best of the best World War I generals that knew what they were doing. There were three things that helped us. Listen very carefully. Normally, I would not be telling you this. <clears throat> Number one, the Enigma Code. Most of you have never heard about the Enigma Code. The Germans established the Enigma Code in 1938. It was impossible to decipher. Zero, 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 point one multiplied by 10. That's your chances of decoding the Enigma code. And every six hours, they change the code. Well, God is on our side. There was a young man by the name of Alan Turing in England, a mathematician, genius. He was at a pub. He had been working on the Enigma code like a... Uh, Hundreds of people. The best chess players in the world were there at Bishi, uh, I guess you'd call it Bishi uh, facility. All top secret. They were trying to figure out the Enigma code. If we could figure this out, we could decipher all the German messages because everything was sent to the Air Force, the Luftwaffe, to submarines, to Rommel, to uh, the uh, Wehrmacht. Everything was sent by the Enigma code. If you can decipher that, you can just read their messages. We did. We knew exactly what they were doing on Normandy. Alan Turing was in a, a pub. And he was with his girlfriend. But his, his girlfriend had a girlfriend who worked with the decoding process. And she said, I'm getting this, this message from this German uh, decoder and we can't decipher the code, but we do decipher one thing. And, and Alan goes, well, how can you do that? She goes, every message sent 
out of Adolf Hitler's office ends with Heil Hitler. And Alan Turing goes, two words, Heil Hitler, and you can decipher that? And they go back and he reprograms his computer. Now, they didn't call it a computer. I think they call it a, a thing. <laughs> it was about as long as this wall, <laughs> okay? And he put in all whatever he would do, you know, and then he put the words Heil Hitler and, and he programmed that, that into the system. And they waited and they waited till the first messages came across at midnight. And here it comes, bing, 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 bing. And all the lights went on this computer and they deciphered the messages. And before long, one message after another, after another. That's why we knew exactly what was happening on Normandy when Adolf Hitler started moving all his troops out of Normandy and moving them to uh, Calais, which is only 16 navigable miles from England to France. That's where Hitler said they will cross. Well, guess what, Adolf? We're going to take the longest route, 60 miles out of Portsmouth and hit those beaches. But we had to add a cherry to the cake. So we had Operation Neptune. Now we're talking about Operation Overlord, Operation Hammerhead, Operation uh, uh, Neptune, and now Operation Secrecy. We had to get the German high command to really believe this. Well, how do you do that? Well, Winston Churchill said, politicians are liars. Probably the biggest liars in the world. And wars are won by lying. Who can outlie the other? It's like a chess game. You're just moving pieces, you know, red herrings. So we went down to the morgue. We had plenty of bodies to choose from, but we chose a young man, probably about 24 years old. Uh, this is ca uh, called Operation Mincemeat. Operation Mincemeat was only known by five people that wore this, five. We couldn't afford anybody else to know about it. We take this body back to my headquarters, clear off my desk, lay the body down, put a second lieutenant's uniform on the body, place handcuffs on his right hand, at the other end of the handcuffs, an attache case, waterproof. Inside the attache case, I had all the operationals of the invasion of, of uh, Fortress Europe. All my plans signed by me several times. Wrong place, wrong time. We placed uh, this young uh, cadaver in a next submarine. It's run by uh, frogmen. Someday they might be called uh, Navy SEALs. The frogmen took this little submarine. Only two men can be in this. One torpedo tube about uh, four navigable miles off of the coast of Spain, right in a U-boat roadway. You know what a U-boat is, okay? A German submarine. They go back and forth all the time there in Spain, outside of Spain. They put the body in the torpedo tube and shoot it out. Flows to the top. Bodies will float. And then the submarine leaves. We find out from the French underground and our double agents in Berlin, two weeks later, those plans are on the desk of Adolf Hitler and the German high command. And then because of ultra, all right, we see that he's moving troops out of Normandy. Waffen-SS, gone. Thank God.
He's replacing it with 14, 15-year-old German youth, some 12, some 10. And then prisoners of war that took the oath of Germany, Poles, Yugoslavia, Russians. He places them in Normandy. Now, a 12-year-old boy with a 50 caliber machine gun can still cut you in two if they know how to use it. So we knew that all the crack troops were gone. We knew that Adolf Hitler slept in till noon, maybe one o'clock in the afternoon, and nobody would be, everybody would be afraid to wake him up. So if we attack in the morning, he's not really going to be, he's not going to know about it till 12 o'clock, one o'clock in the afternoon. And by then it'll be too late. Now we had to pick a day. The area will be Normandy, 60 miles of beach, 60 miles, five beaches, two American, two Canadian, one French. Of course, unfortunately, Omaha Beach was American and that was our worst beach. Utah Beach wasn't near as bad. Omaha Beach, we, la we lost approximately 2,200 men in eight hours. They, they were falling like flies. Never had a chance until we could establish the beachhead. You talk about heroes, huh? 17-year-old boys, men, 18 we found out some were 16 years old. They lied about their age. Come on, press. These are heroes. Never flinched. Never looked back. They could have turned and ran off the beach. They only went one direction. They had to liberate Fortress Europe. They had to find out what's going on with the Jewish community and the African-Americans and the intellectuals and why the Nazis were destroying millions upon millions of people. The mentally retarded, as Hitler would say, Down syndrome babies would be destroyed immediately. Anybody with a handicap, gone. Because Hitler wanted the white Aryan race. Blue eyes, blonde hair, six foot tall, athletic that can beat Jesse Owens. That's what Hitler wanted. He almost got it. We decided on June the 2nd for the invasion. We gathered all the troops, 3.5 million, placed them in, I hate to use the word, but retaining camps with barbed wire fences around it and MPs. Not one of those soldiers was allowed out. Nobody was allowed in except to pass. I feel sorry for all those girlfriends. <laughs> you know, all those soldiers had girlfriends, you know, or some of them got married in England and they would come up to the fence crying and wanting to talk to their boyfriend. No. Everything had to be top secret. If they would find out for many of these men, and they didn't know about it till the day when they got they entered the ships, the landing craft, it would be over. The weather turned on us on June the second, as you realize. Some of you in England realize the weather in England. June the third, bad. June the fourth, Bad. 
I'm beginning to chew all my fingernails. I smoke. At that point, I was smoking five packs of cigarettes a day, about 25 cups of coffee. I was absolutely nervous. I was just, <laughs> you know, I'm responsible for all this. I didn't have any fingernails left. I still don't, I guess. Finally, the weather broke on June the 5th. We called a meeting. They're all looking at me because I'm the only one on the face of the earth that can say, let's go. Everything hinged on it. Millions of lives on my word. That evening, June the 5th, I said, I can't see any other way. Let's go. Within seconds, the room was empty and I was all by myself. They all went out and hit the radios. It's a go, D-Day. I remember I got into my Jeep. My Jeep driver took me out to the 82nd Airborne and the 101st Airborne. Most of those men were 17, 18, 19 years old. I thought it was really nice. Some of the men would paint their face with colors in black and they shaved their head like Mohawk Indians. I'm going... If I was a German Wehrmacht, I don't think I'd want to meet him <laughs> coming over the hill uh, with, a, with a Mohawk haircut. They were tough. These are tough guys. But they knew that 80% of them would be dead in six hours. Did you get that? Press? They knew 80% casualties in six hours when they were dropped behind enemy lines. Many of them drowned because uh, Field Marshal uh, Rommel had flooded the back area around Normandy with 10 feet of water because he knew if they dropped parachutes, they'd go right into the water and drown because the average parachute drop had what? 120 pounds of equipment, hand grenades, flash grenades, medical supplies, ammunition, weapons. It's a lot of weight, isn't it? Right down you go in the water. As I walked among the 101st Airborne, I looked at these young men in the eyes. I knew that I was sending them to their death. And I'm thinking, what do you say to somebody you're going to send to their death? They know they're going to die. I know they're going to die. We talked about farming. I just purchased a farm in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. Ever, anybody ever been there, the press corps, to Gettysburg on my farm? You've been to my farm? You've been to Gettysburg? Yeah. And uh, that's a secret teletype coming in. <laughs> However, we talked about farming, about cattle, about I want to raise uh, Spanish mules and uh, heifers, chickens, and hogs. As soon as this war is over, you're never going to hear from General Eisenhower again. I am going straight to Gettysburg, and my wife is preparing that beautiful home at Gettysburg. And I cannot wait. Hopefully, this war will be over by Christmas. And, and all our young men and young women, nurses, we can be home again to this great country. I had to turn because nobody wants to see a four-star general cry. But I can remember the tears just kept flowing down my cheek. Couldn't hold it back. It's terrible. The price of liberty. 
Probably some of you in the press are liberal. I know that. You know that. But I was given something that maybe a visual sometimes helps. Do you know what our flag looks like? We don't have one here, do we? You know what our flag looks like? It's a beautiful flag, isn't it? Isn't it? You respect it? How would you like to have this flag? Huh? You got the visual of why we were there, the beaches of Normandy? The men that captured this from Waffen SS headquarters signed it. It's the real thing. Every name on there, their name and where they were from. This is why we invaded Europe. Not to be conquerors, but to stop this. And to stop this. But as all of you know, freedom is not free. It comes with a price, doesn't it? it? Comes with a price. It's not free. Tell that to your grandkids and your kids. Somebody had to give up their life to stop this so that we can have this. Freedom of religion. Freedom of the press. Freedom of speech. Freedom to go to whatever school you want to go to. These are the freedoms given to us by our forefathers. We need to cherish them. Hold on to them. Well, as you can tell, we're going to have questions now. We were very successful on D-Day. Loss of life, yes, but we did break through the lines. We owe a lot to the rangers at Point de Hoc. 190 rangers scaled those cliffs. You got the picture? Do you know Point de Hoc? 190 only 90 lived. A hundred rangers died because all the, the Germans did is throw hand grenades down over the cliff. And one would fall, another would take his place and go a few more inches. He would fall, another one would go and climb some more inches. A hundred rangers gone to stop this and to give us our freedoms. So there was a price to pay. You write that in your newspapers. Now we're going to open this up for questions. I, uh, the only requirement that I ask as the Allied Supreme Commander is you let me know what newspaper you're from. And uh, then I will answer it one way or the other. <laughs> Just kidding. Yes, who would have the first? Yes, young man. General Eisenhower, my name is Keith Gwines, and I'm an investigative reporter with the Ashton Times-Gazette in Ashton, Ohio. Wow, you're a long ways away. Yes, sir, I am. But I want to do something, sir, because I'm one of your former soldiers. See, I'm a former sergeant with Headquarters Company, Divisional Support, 1st Infantry Division. I was wounded in Operation Torch, sir. I would like to salute you, sir. Yes, absolutely. I have two questions so that I can let the other reporters speak. After facing the Germans in North Africa, Sicily, Italy, and now Europe, why is it that I understand our tanks, our Shermans, are still undergunned and still under-armored 
facing even the smallest of their tanks, mm-hmm. such as the Mark IV. Yes. And then, sir, my final question. Well, can I answer that first? Yes, sir, please. Yeah, we, we're all familiar with the Mark IV German tank, uh, uh, far above technology than even our Sherman tanks. Uh, to answer his question, uh, you ask Congress. All right, you ask Congress. They supply the money to build this armory. Okay, that answers your first question. Not because of me. I mean, I would love to see a tank that come up against a Mark IV or a Tiger tank. Next question. It is my understanding, and this may still be top secret. I found this out through secret sources, that we had a practice run prior to the D-Day landing. That is correct. And that supposedly the British were supposed to have ships watching our troops during this practice run. Guarding. And yet, for some reason, German S-boats snuck through yes. and attacked our troops. Killed 600. Why, sir, did this happen? Uh, that probably falls in my responsibility, and I take full responsibility for that. I was in charge of that along with General Montgomery. Uh, I can say that the English were due to, to be our support, covering our rear, covering our flanks, as we were doing the, uh, the basic landing. Uh, yes, 600 men were killed. That's absolutely correct. And I, and I feel bad about that. And answer your question? Yes. I don't pass it on to anybody else. I take responsibility. All right. And again, sir. Yes. I salute you. Yes, absolutely. It was an honor to have served under you, sir. Next question. You're the press. Normally, they're jumping up and down, waving their hands, screaming and hollering. Yes, sir. What paper? The Times Reporter, sir, in New Philadelphia, Ohio. Okay. Not, not the New York Times, I hope, but go ahead. 82nd and 101st. What was their mission behind the line, sir? What were they supposed to capture? Okay, the 82nd Airborne Division was supposed to basically capture within four hours Mersini Glace, which they did. That, that uh, was accomplished uh, with very few lives lost. Uh, the 101st basically was to uh, the River Quam, Quam, I think is how you pronounce it. Uh, they're outside of, uh, I can't think of the name, Bo. It's where they have the, tarp- the tapestry. Anybody know they're in France? Uh, I can't think of the name right Bayou, thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, They were to capture the river going into Bayou, which is only like seven miles from the beaches of Normandy. They were to capture all the bridges, okay, either destroy them if applicable or hold them if applicable. And then uh, if they had time on their hands, they were to cause all sorts of havoc, destroy uh, telegraph lines, uh, blow up bridges, uh, train tracks, anything along that line. To answer your question, sir. Yes. Both, both were very successful. And of course, you're familiar with our gliders, the horseshoe gliders. And uh, that one bridge, uh, what was that? Uh, pa- uh, Pegasus? The, yeah, the Pegasus Bridge. And, and we had three horseshoe gliders that went up about, what was it, 100 yards from the bridge and the Germans didn't even know they were there. That's how quiet those gliders are. And of course, we took... Uh, Pegasus Bridge right away. And then here again, we held that bridge, which was very important so that the Germans could not get reinforcements. But I don't know why we were concerned about reinforcements because uh, General Rundstadt, who was basically in charge over Rommel, and Rommel himself 
refused to contact Adolf Hitler of what was going on because he was sleeping. And only Adolf Hitler could release the Panzer divisions. Now, if they would have released those Tiger tanks, there were, there were two divisions about 10 miles to 15 miles outside of Normandy. You would be speaking German today. They would have pushed us right into the ocean, those tanks. But they, they didn't come until the afternoon, and it was way too late. Thank God. Other questions for General Eisenhower? I have a quick question, sir. Yes, sir. What newspaper? Are you from Cleveland, Ohio? No, sir. You got Cleveland Indians on. <laughs> sir, you said that Adolf Hitler delayed going and attacking England. Yes. Do you know what made him delay? God. It was a miraculous thing. Uh, they had the amphibious assault vehicles all lined up. They had been pounding England for almost a year. Uh, England was impotent. Uh, after uh, Depi, you're familiar with Depi, uh, the invasion that happened, when was it, 1941, uh, they lost uh, hundreds and well, thousands of troops. And then, of course, what is the great miracle that happened there at Dunkirk? You're familiar with Dunkirk? Where thousands of British troops were ferried across in sailboats, rowboats, anything that Winston Churchill could get his hands on, crossing the English Channel and bringing those soldiers back but it was depleted. Everything was depleted. Hitler knew that. Now, if Hitler would have crossed the English Channel at that point, after Depi, and uh, they probably would have defeated England, we would not have had a place to, uh, to land. The closest area probably would have been Switzerland, or not Switzerland, I'm sorry, uh, Norway or Sweden, and even they were controlled by the Germans, probably the Russians, or we would have had to come in on the soft belly up through Italy, going through the Alp Mountains, the, the Alps, into Germany that way, which would have been incredible uh, to do that logistic-wise in the Alp Mountains. So uh, it was just a, a miracle, a miracle from God. Uh, I am a believer, and uh, some, basically sometimes you can see God's handiwork in military affairs. And, and that was a def definite blessing. Good question. Sure. The intelligence before the war, there had to be signs with the lead up, with all the technology that Germany had. Yes. Where was American intelligence? Did they see anything coming? Yes. Was there any concern on our part? Absolutely. President, Bo uh, President Bo uh, Roosevelt had his iPad in his ear. He didn't have iPads, did he? He had plugs in his ear. Uh, the biggest intelligence for Roosevelt came from the U.S. ambassador to Germany. Can I just step aside and say you want to read a good book? Read the book called In the Garden of the Beast, written by the ambassador to, to Germany. And the ambassador from Germany in 1937-38 saw these people beginning to disappear. They uh, brought about a what I would consider a, a fake plague that was carried uh, by the Jews and if you hung around a Jew, you could be contagious on this virus. I'm not, I'm not blowing this up. And uh, then it got to the point where the Jews had to wear yellow stars. And if they did not have their yellow star out in public, they would be ratted on. Uh, you had to have, wear a yellow star. 
and uh, you had to stay away from the Jews. And the ambassador to England saw, or the ambassador to the United States, to Germany, saw all of this. Then he started seeing Jews disappear, even in his neighborhood, which was an upstart neighborhood where the, you know, all the embassies were. And he kept telegraphing back to Roosevelt, something is going on in Germany. We need to do something about it. Then, just before the American uh, ambassador was kicked out of Germany, he wrote a letter to Roosevelt and said, hey, there is a tremendous buildup in Germany. We've got to do something. This is Roosevelt. Nothing. And nothing until Pearl Harbor. And then I don't know whether he had an epiphany, you know, and boom, you know, we're going to go to war, but it's too late, uh, Roosevelt. Uh, Germany's had four years to build up the greatest technology, mankind. And in 1944, the Germans were flying jet planes. The Americans radioed in as they were flying, this plane would go by. Well, sure. They had jets. That was a secret weapon that, that Hitler said is going to win the war. But it was too late by then because they couldn't mass produce the jet engines. But I can tell you who's going to go after those uh, engineers after the war. Russia. Any other questions? Anybody would have a few more questions, do we? Yes, sir. What newspaper? Times Reporter, New Philadelphia, Ohio. Okay. <laughs> Nuclear fission is also a big thing in Germany. Yes. Can you tell us about that? They had two plants of heavy water in uh, Sweden and uh, Norway. Uh, two commando raids uh, spearheaded by uh, frogmen, Navy SEALs, uh, under my authorization, destroyed both of the heavy water plants, along with the uh, a resistance movement of the uh, Swedes in, uh, in Norway, and also some French French resistant movers. They were just they, those two were destroyed. Uh, Albert Einstein, I have the letter. I don't have the original, but I have a copy of the letter that Albert Einstein wrote President Roosevelt in 1938, warning Roosevelt that Germany was experimenting with heavy water. And anybody that knows anything about nuclear warfare realize what heavy water is, what it can do. And also that Germany had been bringing, importing uh, that ore. I, I'm, not, I'm not a nuclear physicist, but what is needed to set off that chain, that Germany had that. So, yes, as far back as 1938, 1939, when they were making everybody wear yellow stars and stay away from the Jews because they had a virus, they were initiating behind the people, uh, pot, the, trying to work on what, what he called Hitler didn't call it an H-bomb or, or he called it the, the big bomb, the great bomb that he was going. And if he would have had it, he would have used it immediately on us. And here again, we'd be speaking German. Do you see how the hand of God is in all of this? Do you really? I mean, you know, go ahead. There was talk. I heard of a bomb, a big bomb going off in Germany in late 1943. Mm -hmm. Is there any truth to that? Yes, there is. Mm -hmm. They were experimenting. I don't know all the ins and outs. I read some of the declassified papers. And uh, yes, you are correct. And we, nobody to this day knows, or if they do, they're not saying anything. We know that many people in the area died of cancer. Uh, that might be a possibility. 
So any final questions? And then we'll, we'll wrap this up and, and have a devotion, I believe. Uh, any final questions? I can probably step out of character real quick. I have to because this is all wool. <laughs> Those of you who have been in the Army, you know about wool. <laughs> okay? You know, and during the Vietnam era, we had to run in these. Now they, my son was in the Army. He had tennis shoes. <laughs> I go, tennis shoes? <laughs> doing your run six miles and we had to run six miles in combat boots but any anybody have any any other comments yes hi general there is supposedly testing on a vehicle of some kind called the bell that was supposed to have done something um do you know anything about that no i've heard about, i don't know I, I i won't address that because i don't know if i don't know something i'll say no one final thing, I'm sorry, I, I, I didn't bring this into my presentation, I forgot. General Eisenhower gave to every troop leaving Portsmouth on the landing crafts and ships to hit the beaches, this material. All of this is authentic. All of this was found on the body of one of the soldiers on D-Day at Omaha Beach. And the parents wanted to give it to me. This is the real deal. This is what was given. And this right here, you're familiar with Gideons, and the Gideons would give Bibles out to all the servicemen. Now, you can't do this today in the Army, but back then you could. And they all received a brass plate. Inside the brass plate was a New Testament Bible from the Gideons. We know it saved the life of some men that day because they placed it in their breast pocket. We know it did. The news that came back to us. They were also given a prayer book for soldiers and sailors. Of prayers. They were also given a pocket guide to France because they, they were landing in France. How to understand French and how to make yourself understand. They had a quick course in French, huh? And one of my favorites, strength for service for God and country. Devotionals. Each one of these given to every soldier that left Portsmouth to head in to the hells of death. How far we've come. <laughs> How far we come. Thank you. God bless America. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Living History with Ken Hammontree. Stay tuned for more upcoming episodes and new historical figures and characters all represented by Ken himself, brought to life right here on Living History, where history comes alive.